0: I'm gonna have us turn to our text uh, for this morning at this time. Uh, We are in a sermon series looking at the seven signs that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John, and so we're looking at the fourth one of those this morning, John chapter six, verses one through 15. John chapter six, verses one through 15. And we're gonna continue that series uh, this morning. John chapter six, verses one through 15, and this is what the Apostle John writes. Sometime after this, that's the events of chapter five, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples, and the Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him because he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish but how far will that go with so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down, and there was plenty of grass in that place, and so they sat down, and there were about 5,000 men there. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were seated, each as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather up the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over from those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began saying to each other, surely this is the prophet who is to come. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew up a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, a few months ago I was able to get one of the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, It was a random Thursday afternoon and I received an email informing me that the DeVos Center downtown had opened up 200 vaccines to clergy members. I called the registration number they provided and uh, was lucky enough to squeeze in number 187. When I arrived a short time later, one of the volunteers handed me a packet of information detailing everything that I needed to know about the vaccine. Uh, It told me which one I'd be getting, its list of ingredients, how effective it was, and also its possible side effects. And according to the information, which nerd that I am, I read all of, as I stood waiting in line, uh, some of the side effects included the same symptoms as COVID-19 itself. So it was things like fatigue, shortness of breath, chills, aches, and so on. This is normal, the packet said. It means that the vaccine is having its intended effect. It's causing the sort of immune response that will then protect you from the actual virus. Well, in the same way, Jesus' signs in this gospel are starting to have their intended effect too. Like I said, we've been looking at the seven signs that, Jesus, uh, that John uh, records Jesus performing in his gospel. Uh, and Jesus certainly performed more than just those seven signs, as both John and the other gospel writers make clear. But John highlights these seven in his book as a way of revealing to us, his readers, who Jesus truly is. And by the time we get here to Jesus' fourth sign, we should start to have a sense of that. But it's not just us as John's readers today who should start to have a sense of who Jesus is. What we see in this text is that it's actually the people who were with him too, those who witnessed these signs firsthand, Jesus' original audience. As I think John makes clear here, they had started to get a sense of who Jesus is as well. And so that's why there's this great crowd that starts following Jesus uh, here in chapter six. John tells us that there's actually over 5,000 people in this crowd, 5,000 men, plus however many women and children were there with them. Uh, They'd gathered together, they'd gone looking for Jesus, and they'd finally tracked him down on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, up on a mountainside with his disciples. And it's all because of these signs all because of these things that Jesus has been doing. John tells us that these people had seen the wonders that Jesus could work. They'd heard about his miracles. They knew what he could do, and so they wanted more. They wanted to see him in action. They followed him in order to see him continue doing what he had been doing, things like healing the sick and diseased, casting demons out of the possessed, and maybe even doing something as spectacular as turning water Into wine. And yet, even with such a large audience, even with such an eager crowd, even with thousands following him over the hills of Galilee, Jesus doesn't quite do what this whole crowd of people expected of him. He doesn't do the sorts of things that these people had come to see. He doesn't rework the same signs that he had done previously. He doesn't heal people or cast demons out of of those who are afflicted with them or turn one thing into another. Instead, Jesus does something different, something that he hadn't done before, and also something that these people who were following him probably didn't expect. There's no miraculous metamorphosis here, no dramatic confrontation with the demonic, no inexplicable restoration of health. Instead, Jesus decides to do something seemingly simple. He decides to feed these people who have been following him. That's the sign he chooses to go with here, multiplying bread and fish so that this great crowd of people can eat. And Jesus starts this sign as he does from time to time with his disciples. In verse 5 John writes when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him he said to Philip Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now if I'm Philip here I'm feeling a little put on the spot, right? I mean, like we said, this is no mere dinner party. This is a crowd of thousands upon thousands of people. And so I would assume that Philip is feeling a little overwhelmed by that question. If I'm Philip, I'm probably thinking something like, I don't know where to find food for all these people. Why don't you ask one of the better-known disciples like James or John what to do? Jesus kind of puts Philip on the spot, doesn't he? And yet what we don't get from this text Uh, What we don't see right here in this passage is that Philip is actually the exact person that Jesus should be asking this question to. And that's because we know from elsewhere in John's Gospel, chapter one, verse 44 to be exact, that Philip, like a few of the other disciples uh, in Jesus' group, is from Bethsaida. And it turns out that where they're located on the far side of the Sea of Galilee in this text is not all that far from Bethsaida. So in other words, Philip is the local boy here. This is his hometown area, his childhood stomping grounds, an area that he would have known quite well. And so if anyone is going to know where Jesus and his group of disciples might be able to get some food for this crowd, it would be Philip. And yet he fails the test. First of all, he doesn't even offer an option. Given the number of people who have gathered, Philip probably correctly realizes that none of the local establishments are gonna be able to uh, take care of them. But then on top of that, even if one of them could, Philip can't imagine how they would pay for it. He answers Jesus in verse 7 by saying, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each person just to have a bite. And he's right. It probably would. It might even take more than that. But by this point in John's gospel, Jesus isn't looking for that. He's not looking for the kind of practical, rational, dollars and cents response that Philip gives here. He's not looking for reasons why something can't be done. Instead, he's looking for ways that they can be. Jesus is looking for faith here, belief, trust, even a little bit. By the time we get here to Jesus' fourth sign in this gospel, Jesus wants to see faith from his disciples that he can do the sorts of things that no one else can. After all, we know from the texts that we've looked at previously that Jesus' disciples have seen at least two of the previous three signs that he's done. And so you would think that they'd be able to demonstrate at least a little trust in him, right? And fortunately, one of them does. It's another one of these local boy disciples from Bethsaida, Peter's brother, Andrew. He walks towards Jesus through the crowd of disciples, and he he brings a young boy with him and says to Jesus, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But then, almost as if coming to his senses, he says, but how far will these go among so many? And yet, even that small bit of faith it turns out, is enough. It turns out that that's actually all that Jesus needs. That's all he's looking for. He doesn't need his disciples to have a detailed plan all the way from A to Z with every step laid out and neatly organized. He doesn't need them to figure out the whole thing from start to finish. He doesn't need them to set up a study committee, exhaustively examine all the options, and then finally come to a decision once it's no longer relevant. That's a little joke about how things work in the CRC. You kinda know what I'm talking about, some of you. Instead, as Jesus says elsewhere, even faith as big as a mustard seed is good enough to move mountains. And so the mere fact that Andrew brings this boy forward with his humble lunch is enough for Jesus to work with. Jesus can do something with that, even that. And so Jesus tells his disciples to have the people sit down, and they do. This crowd of 5,000 plus spreads out on the grass. They arrange themselves in groups of family members and friends and they're ready to see what's going to happen next. Jesus, meanwhile, takes this humble offering of five barley loaves and two fish and in a move that foreshadows another meal on the evening before his death, he gives thanks, breaks it, and distributes it to the people who are seated as much as they want until everyone has had enough. And this is where the sign happens. John doesn't even really tell us about it. Instead, once they're done, he simply records Jesus telling his disciples to pick up the leftovers. Gather the pieces that are left over, he tells his disciples in verse 12. Let nothing be wasted. And so they do. Fill 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves. And that's it. That's the evidence John gives us that another sign has taken place here. That's the proof. There shouldn't be leftovers, right? From 5,000 people eating five barley loaves. And yet there are. As one commentator puts it, this is about as understated as John gets. Most of the time with these signs, he makes it abundantly clear that something special has happened. He sort of builds up the anticipation in the story Comments on it a bit. Sometimes he even says something like, through this sign, Jesus revealed his glory. But not here. John simply tells us that there were leftovers. And yet, even with John being uncharacteristically reserved, it's still amazing. The fact of the matter is that Jesus took five loaves of barley bread and two small fish and somehow made them feed over 5,000 people. It's another one of these signs, another one of these semion. That's the Greek word for signs that John uses. It's another act of power that tells us something about who Jesus really is. And so the question for us as John's listeners, as his readers, becomes, so who is he? Who is this Jesus? What does this sign show us about him? What does this feeding of 5,000 people reveal about who he is? What are we supposed to walk away from this understanding? Well, in order to to truly understand that, we actually need to go back uh, to the Old Testament and talk a bit about one of the signs that God worked for his people back then. You see, this actually isn't the first time in Scripture that God has fed a group of people in the wilderness with a kind of miracle bread. That's actually happened before. In fact, a few months ago, we actually looked at part of that story because during the season of Lent, we looked at the story of the Exodus. And that's the story of how God led his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. He rescued them and liberated them gave them their freedom, and brought them out of their bondage. Most importantly, he led them to himself and into a relationship with him. Despite all of that, though, as we saw, it didn't take the Israelites very long to turn against God. And specifically, in the first few days after the Exodus, once the threat of the Egyptians catching up to them was behind them, the Israelites started grumbling about their lack of food. Instead of calling down judgment on them, though, dealing with them harshly, instead of reminding them how much worse their lives had been just a few days before that, God acted out of his grace. He told the Israelites he would send them a mysterious bread-like substance called manna. and Every night, he would blanket their camp with it so that they would have enough to eat. And along with some miraculously provided quail, That's what ended up keeping the Israelites alive in the wilderness for 40 years. They ate the manna God provided, the bread of heaven as they called it, and they lived. And understandably with something like that, understandably with something that keeps you alive and able to survive, that miracle of God providing manna for the Israelites in the wilderness became an important part of their history as a people and their understanding of themselves. So much so, in fact, that over the years, some of the Jewish people started to believe that eventually, God would do something like that again. They started to believe that God's mighty acts for Israel in the past wouldn't just stay in the past. Instead, they started to think eventually, they would happen again. They would reoccur. God would repeat the same sorts of signs and miracles that he had worked for the Israelites back in the Old Testament. And specifically, those who believe that, believe that that would happen when the Messiah came, the Jewish people's long-awaited savior and redeemer. When the Messiah came, he would actually repeat many of the same signs and miracles that God had worked for the Israelites in the Old Testament. And that's how they would know that he was the Messiah, because he would be able to recreate God's great miracles in Israel's past, you see, for the Jewish people, when they believed that when the Messiah came, he wouldn't just lead them into a new future that was entirely different from their past. He would actually lead them instead into a future that would mirror their past, echo it in a way. And that's what would prove him to be the Messiah. He wouldn't come doing all sorts of new, different things. Instead, he would come doing the exact same things that God had done for them in their history. And that is where we see the meaning of this sign here. That's what helps us understand who Jesus is. Just like what God did for the Israelites back in the wilderness after the Exodus, Jesus provides people here with bread from heaven too. It's the new manna, if you will. Version 2.0. A remix and reworking of the same miracle God had done so long ago. In other words, what's going on here is that Jesus is using this sign to tell people that he is the one they've been expecting. He's the Messiah that they've been waiting for. He's the one that they have believed for so long would come. And now he has. And so when you think about it like that, is it any wonder that this crowd of people tries to seize Jesus and force him to be king? You see, along with the expectation that the Messiah would recreate or reenact some of the important miracles of Israel's past, there had also developed this idea among the Jewish people that when the Messiah came, he would arrive as a political leader. He would be a conquering king or military commander who would defeat the Jewish people's enemies, liberate them from their foreign oppressors like Rome, and reestablish their historical kingdom of Israel as it had been during its heyday. And so when Jesus began performing these signs, turning water into wine, long distance reviving a dying boy, healing an invalid man with a word, and now miraculously multiplying bread, people would have started to read into that. They would have started to see him as more than just a rabbi, more than just a prophet, more than just a religious or spiritual leader. They would have instead started to see him as a king. And what's interesting is that Jesus actually rejects that here he runs away from it. He goes back up a mountain to be with his father by himself alone. This is yet another reason why Jesus is unlike every other figure in history. Because unlike pretty much everyone else who's had the opportunity, when handed the levers of power, the keys to the kingdom, the chance to make something significant and momentous of himself, Jesus rejects it. He subverts the people's attempts to coronate him. He slips away, makes himself scarce, heads back up the mountain, and goes to be alone with his father. The question for us is why? After all, isn't that who Jesus is? Isn't that what we actually confess him to be? Lord, King, that he is those things? That he did come to conquer the world and establish his kingdom? One of the commentators I read touched on that. Fred Bruner writes, the crowd's reaction here is actually ours. We must make something of this man. Surely that's the first step to genuine faith. Isn't there wanting to make him king exactly the response that every Christian sermon and lesson seeks in its hearers? Then what is wrong here? Bruner continues and answers his own question. What is wrong here? where everything else seems so externally right is that Jesus is not the kind of prophet or king that they think he is. The scene is a little like the temptation story in the other gospels where Jesus, we recall, was tempted by the devil to be A, a wonder bread delivering, B, space defying, and C, world conquering king, and Jesus rejected all three offers. It is very hard for us mortals, even for us beginning to believe in Jesus mortals, to get Jesus right. Our first instinct seems so right, but we must constantly relearn Jesus on his own terms. This relearning process is a lifelong continuing education course for disciples, a course that never seems to end. And Bruner actually goes on to talk about something that I think is particularly relevant today, which is the Christianization of certain political candidates, parties, and platforms here in our country right or left-wing, progressive or conservative, Democrat or Republican, Trump supporter or riding with Biden, the fact is that we often try to make Jesus our kind of king. We claim him for our side, declare his opposition to the other, and in the end, just like this crowd in Galilee, miss who he really is. But this sign, like the others that John records in his gospel, makes his identity clear. Jesus is king, he is Lord. He is the long-awaited savior, Messiah, we've been waiting for. He might not be exactly the one we expect or wish he was, but he is the one we need. And that brings us to the gospel. You see, like the crowd in this passage, so often we come to Jesus looking for signs and wonders. We come to him with certain expectations and desires. We come to him thinking that we know what kind of savior we need, who we need him to be, and what we need him to do for us. But instead, just like in this sign, he does something different, something we don't expect or anticipate, but also something that no one else could do for us. He lived among us, He fed us with his word. He took our place on the cross and died for us. And then just like we saw with these three children who are baptized today, he rose to new life so that we could rise to new life too. He set us free from our sin and misery and freed us for a relationship with God so that we could be his people again. In other words, just like the Israelites before us, through Christ we've received the grace and redemption of our God. That's what we see happening when water turns to wine, when the sick and dying are recovered, when the broken and weak stand, and when even a few loaves of bread and fish are multiplied. When those kind of things happen, it's clear that the grace of our God is at work, just as it has been in the past. And my friends, that grace is most of all at work in us through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, help us to recognize that grace. Help us to see the kind of savior that you are. You're not the kind of Savior we've always wanted, anticipated, expected. Instead, you are the Savior that we need. Lord, we thank you for being our God, our King, and the one we've been waiting for. Thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.